Hi David. How you going? I'm pretty good. So we're here for the second podcast in our Evolving Earth ERB 102 series. And what's on the cards this week? We are going to go back to the beginning, almost the beginning of time, but we're going to look at uh, some of the cosmic chem chemistry, it's called. So how some of the elements are created mm -hmm. and how those elements came into being to form something like a terrestrial rocky planet to where stuff comes from. Yes. So this week we have Professor Bells Camber. We're going to um, throw some questions his way. Some of them provided by students. Some of them prom prompted based on the topics uh, of interest. In particular, how do we make a habitable planet? Rightio. Well, let's see if we can bamboozle Bells then. Should yes. we get him on the line? Let's do it. Yes, hello, I can hear you. Very good, very good. So thanks for coming on our uh, embryonic podcast, Bells. Do you want to tell us who you are and what you do? I am a geologist. Um, I'm the professor of petrology here at QUT in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. And I have traveled the globe um, working at many universities in pursuit of my interests about the Earth as a planet. So I, I've heard you describe yourself as a geochemical omnivore, and I thought that was perfect explanation. Yes, yes. So when I studied earth sciences, I was particularly taken with the topic of geochemistry. And ever since, geochemistry has become a sort of a, a generalist discipline that allows us to study all aspects of the Earth's evolution. So, Bells, you're about as old as the, the solar system. Could you tell yes. us a bit about how it formed? Well, if I was as old as the solar system, I would be very, very well informed about how it all came about. But we have indeed very, very early samples. And in fact, outboard from Mars, there is a, a ring of asteroids, which is kind of embryonic planetesimal, so the building blocks of the early in the solar system planets. And thankfully, occasionally, a few of these fall onto Earth, uh, typically as very small meteorites, and they contain a fascinating array of information that allows us to patch together the early story of the solar system. So when matter started to clump together. So we, in fact, we know probably more about the 10 first million years of the solar system than we then know about the following 500 million years. Fascinating. So we know a lot, Bells, it sounds like, about the first 10 million years of the solar system because we have these meteorites that are frozen in time from that period. But there are differences, aren't there, in the composition of things throughout the solar system. And so when did those differences um, evolve? What's the story there? So obviously, we have the outer gas giants. So beyond a line outwards from the sun uh, that we call the snow line, matter out there never was heated up 
above the melting point of ice or very quickly it cooled. And so these gas giants uh, contain an awful lot of uh, relatively volatile matter, which is completely different to the composition of the inner solar uh, system planets. Now, in amongst those meteorites that fall, uh, occasionally fall to Earth, there is a very rare meteorite called carbonaceous chondrite, um, very high concentration of carbon that is in these meteorites. And the most are essentially composed of stardust. So they avoided being part of any embryonic planetesimal, and they are therefore unchanged, clumped together sediment from uh, the early disk. And therefore, we know that the disk itself was actually rich in carbon, rich in nitrogen, rich uh, in chlorine, and also quite rich in hydrogen and oxygen. However, most of this solid matter inwards or from the ice line, and because of all this radioactive decay, which releases a lot of heat, these early planetesimals were melted. And as they were melted, they lost all this precious carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, fluorine, chlorine, nitrogen. And this has left the inner solar system stony, rocky, and relatively devoid of the volatile species. So you mentioned the precious uh, lighter elements there. Why are they precious? Well, they're precious to us, uh, but I think anyone who uh, speculates about the potential of life forms outside the Earth and certainly outside the solar system needs to look at these building blocks of organic molecules and these building blocks, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, um, they, they are built from these precious elements. So those elements we know a lot about on Earth because they accumulate. So, and in particular, in something that we described as fairly unique to the Earth is the liquid water. Yes. So it sounds like from what you're saying that the inner planets are basically made of the same stuff. Yeah. Geologically speaking, fairly similar in composition. But the question that I have about it is, Earth has an ocean and a dense atmosphere. And why is that the case and where did it come from? My old textbook reading tells me that it came from comets. The cometary hypothesis uh, was indeed also what I was taught. So the idea is that after the Earth was uh, hit by an object roughly the size of the present day Mars, the moon formed. And in that event, the Earth would have lost all of its water. And later on, when the gas giants were reshuffled because they they changed position. Comets were sent um, toward, hurtling towards the Earth. And uh, the Earth, because it has the largest mass of any of the inner solar system, would have captured a disproportionately large amount of these incoming comets. And that these comets uh, are essentially the source of, of that water. What's, what sort of time per 
frame are we talking about? This is the... so this would have uh, happened between 4.4 and 4 billion years ago. Uh, so very, very early in, in the solar system. Um, that was the prevailing hypothesis. But now that we have been able to actually fly a spacecraft to comets, and have collected cometary material and brought it back to Earth, plus have developed spectroscopic methods to analyze the composition of comets from looking at their tails, we now know that the isotopes of hydrogen and oxygen that make up the ice in the comets are of a different proportion than they are on Earth. And therefore, this original cometary hypothesis is not no longer um, the one that is mostly favored. Meanwhile, another very important observation has been made uh, on Earth. Um, when we mine diamonds, uh, occasionally these diamonds, which come from depths greater than 200 kilometers, in the, in the depths of the Earth. Occasionally, they contain minerals uh, from the Earth's deep mantles. And we can uh, shine laser light through these diamonds. And with this measurement, we have been able to show that these minerals can contain water, despite the fact that they exist at great depths. So that then gives rise to the end endogenous hypothesis, meaning that the Earth still today may contain another ocean's worth of water simply as trace quantities included in, in the lattice of, of mantle minerals. So if the Earth has lots of water inside the molten portion of the Earth, another whole ocean's worth, you said, does that mean that other planets in the inner solar system like Venus and maybe Mars, could they also have a lot of water in their mantle? Well, I think we can write off Mercury because Mercury, uh, unfortunately, has suffered a very large collision that sort of stripped it of even most of its rocky mantle. But I think in the distant past, uh, Mars and, in, and Venus uh, very likely also uh, had water. Now, the, the big difference between the Earth and our two neighboring planets is that we have plate tectonics. So we are the biggest planet, and therefore um, the rock layers that um, make up the shells of the Earth, they, they act a bit like a duna, and so that preserves heat inside the Earth. And therefore, the Earth, despite its long history, hasn't lost all the primordial heat uh, that it accumulated when it formed. And that means that we haven't run out of heat to move plates around. And when we move plates around, we're also pushing rocks that were at the ocean floor deep down back into the Earth, such that we can both bring water back to the surface, but also store water back deep into the Earth. So there is no reason to assume that the Earth's ocean uh, always had the same volume. So 
it's a certainty that there's no plate tectonics on Mars or Venus. Is, is that the case? I can have a go at answering yeah. that one. So I think right now we can be fairly sure there's no plate tectonics happening on, on Venus or Mars in the style we have here on this planet. But there's some tantalizing evidence on both Venus and Mars that plate tectonics may have been active in the past. Venus has highlands and lowlands, as does Mars, which may once have been continents. We can see some magnetic anomalies that suggest maybe there was plate tectonics in the past. And there's some speculation that maybe along with plate tectonics, we had magnetic fields on all of these planets. That may have protected water from escaping into space. So Venus is really dry today, but it may have had water in the atmosphere in the past, but that water has escaped into space. Uh, water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. If it gets disassociated, the hydrogen is so light it can escape to space. And there's some isotopic evidence that that has happened on both planets. And so today, Earth's unique, but it may not have been the case early on. Yeah, I mean, I think for a fact, we know that when planets initially cool, they form a, a liquid metal core. And eventually, as they cool further, that core starts to solidify. And Venus and Mars must have had such magnetic fields before their cores fully solidified. So there's every reason to suspect that all the three planets had shielding um, magnetic fields. But coming back to the point of size, um, we simply have the luxury uh, of being on a larger planet that hasn't fully uh, a fully solidified core yet. Speaking of planetary cores, there was some interesting news this week. Uh, for the first time, we've determined that Mars does in fact have a liquid core. We determine that by measuring the rates at which seismic waves move through the planetary interior. And it seems the core, it's liquid and it's also shockingly large. Supposedly, uh, about half the radius of the entire planet. So I don't know. Really? Yes. Wow. So, I mean, that completely blows my theory out of the water. Yes. We might uh, see a bunch of new theories being proposed in the coming years based on this, this data. I, I, have a que I have a question. Is water required for plate tectonics to, to function? I would certainly argue that that's the case. Yeah. Why do we need water for plate tectonics? Plate tectonics really means that we're shoving some plates under other plates and pull them down. That, to me, is a big difference between so-called continental drift versus plate tectonics. And I think if we want plate tectonics, we need to be able to lubricate the zone where we want to shove one plate under another. And the way that happens is that uh, we convert the rocks that are at, at, at the bottom of the ocean, uh, we convert these into new rocks, which we call soapstones. There's a good reason for that, and that's because they feel very soapy and they can slide very easily against each other. And I honestly don't see how we can overcome this obstacle. So we move on to a question, Bells? Sure. Yeah, so our listeners uh, have provided some uh, questions. Question time. Righty-o, there's, there's a question here for BALS that involves isotopes 
which we touched on last week. And the question is from Nikki Prater. Hope I'm pronouncing that surname correctly. Hopefully. And the question is, are all isotopes unstable? If not, how can you tell if an isotope is stable or unstable? Excellent question, Nikki. So um, the answer is there are many stable isotopes. In fact, there are nowadays more stable isotopes than unstable isotopes. We can stick atoms of an element into a chamber, pump out the air from this chamber and produce a vacuum. And then we attach a relatively simple meter onto this chamber, which will simply wait. It will detect any radioactive decay that would indicate the perishing of one of those isotopes. So it can take days for the first such isotope to decay, but if we leave the sample long enough in the chamber and we detect no such decay, then we can be sure that this isotope is factually stable. The second question comes from Nartika Thompson, and she asks, how is a half-life determined? So we have all these isotope systems that we use for different, uh, different materials or different geological materials. So some have a shorter half-life, like radiocarbon, which is just over 5,000 years. We have uranium, uranium lead series, which has a range of, depending on the isotopes, up to 4 billion years. How do we determine how long a half-life is for a given uh, isotope? So the simple answer to the question is counting for long enough. It sounds very trivial. Uh, and in, a, in essence, it is pretty trivial. We purify the substance in whose isotope we are interested, uh, so much so that there simply is no other elemental impurity in there. Once that is achieved, and that really is the most difficult uh, aspect of the undertaking. It is a matter of sealing this material and, and uh, putting it in a chamber and beginning to count. Now, there is a, a geochemist who works at the University of Toronto who did exactly that for um, the isotope rubidium-87, which has a half-life time of billions of years. And he counted for his entire PhD, uh, which lasted five years. Uh, obviously, that's a very short period of time, considering the entire half-life time. But he counted enough events to be able to determine the half-life with a precision of better than 0.25%. But what is really interesting is that he is now nearing retirement age and he has kept counting <laughs> and in his office, in fact. And he has recently published a new scientific paper. And because he has now so many more observations, he has been able to narrow the error uh, down to less than one per mil. Uh, and in, the experiment will keep going. So the other way of doing it is to count the daughter isotopes. So when we look at um, these daughter isotopes in, in the meteorites that we pick up, we can tell just from the, uh, measuring these daughter isotopes uh, that the universe must 
or the matter that is in the solar system must be billions of years older than the solar system itself. Are there, are there any isotopes that we consider to be stable but we just haven't counted for long enough? I think there might be a bismuth. Uh, bismuth is a heavy metal. I think there might be one or two of these very uh, heavy elements. But even if they turn out to be extremely mildly radioactive, I think it wouldn't have any consequence for the use of isotopes in, in Earth sciences, which, as you have um, already said, is, is to to turn relative into absolute time. Thank you very much, Bells, for joining us today. Um, we'll look forward to your lecture on Monday. Monday. Perfect. See you all then. So we had a question, another question from Nikki, uh, who wanted to know more about the per Perseverance rover and how it, it did its analysis and what decisions were made regarding the usage of the rover. Mm. Did you ask, well, how does Perseverance know what rock sample to analyze? Yes. And what equipment is on board for analysis? This is a big question. Big question, because there's a lot of things uh, going on on the Perseverance rover. So, and too much to cover in one segment. So we're going to drag this out over several weeks and we're going to do one instrument per week. So how many, how many do we have? There's like eight or nine or it, 10. Supercam, yeah. Pixel, Sherlock, the ground penetrating radar, Moxie. Well, Moxie is not sort of tech demonstration, okay. but I guess it's well, a, that, it's okay, a thing. This is, maybe this is what Moxie thinking. generates oxygen and we've got the helicopter. I guess that's another instrument or system. Ingenuity. So that's at least seven. Yeah. And I'm probably forgetting someone, which at least seven. At least seven. So, so we're going to start with one. The superest cam there is. So what can you tell us about supercam, David? I can tell you that it's placed or it lives on the mast. It was originally flown on Curiosity as ChemCam. Before ChemCam, it was used to determine the elemental chemistry of substances in nuclear reactors. What supercam actually does is allow you to measure the elemental composition of something. So what something's made of on that elemental level, iron and sulfur or whatever, calcium. So with Supercam, we fire a laser at a rock that could be some distance away, several meters away. The laser heats up the rock and plasmarizes it. And by looking at the way light interacts with the plasma, we can determine what elements are present. Um, probably everyone listening has performed simple experiments in high school where you get a Bunsen burner and you throw different elements in there mm -hmm. and you make different colored flames. A little bit like fireworks, is that? A little bit like fireworks, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You put a bit of, I don't know what. Strontium. A bit of strontium in your fire, mm. might go green, something like that. Yeah. So Copper. we're doing the same thing with, uh, with Supercam. But what makes Supercam super cool is that we now have an incredible zoom capability on it. So at the moment, we're looking at objects that are many kilometers away in amazing detail. And we're even able to use that laser that fires to clean some of the rocks we're looking at. We can clean the dust off. Because when we fire that laser, we make a little crater and a miniature explosion as that plasma is created and the dust gets blown off the surface of the rock. So why do, why do we want to blow the dust off the rock? We want to blow the dust off the rock so we can see what's under the dust. Yep. We want to know what, exactly what the rock is. We don't want to be contaminated by foreign particles. There's dust everywhere on dust Mars, a terribly yeah. dusty environment. And if it was us, we'd just walk up to the rock with a, a hammer, right, and crack a crack something off and look at the fresh surface but yeah. we don't have a hammer aboard perseverance so we have to use things like um supercam to blast the dust away well i think we've talked for long enough today yeah. luke what do you reckon i think so i am still absorbing 
some of the stuff that Bowles was talking about. Uh, fascinating stuff. So, some of the stuff that you don't really get uh, in uh, in textbooks. You're not going to get it in the textbook. No. Probably uh, not in the lecture either. No. But, so uh, sometimes it's the story behind the story. Thank you, everybody, for, for absorbing with us. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.